Greetings, this is Dot, with a quick announcement before we introduce Episode 5 with Sonia Drimmer. Starting with this week's episode, the first of 2023, Inside My Favorite Manuscript is going weekly. Every Tuesday, Lindsay and I will be releasing a new episode with someone who loves manuscripts talking about the manuscript they love the most. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss it. And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating and a review. We appreciate it. And now, on with episode five. This is Scott. And this is Lindsay. And welcome to this episode of Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Today, we're joined by Sonia Drummer, Associate Professor in the History of Art and Architecture at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Sonia's expertise is in illuminated manuscripts and early print, and she's also interested in the reception of medieval objects in post-medieval times, a topic we've touched on a bit in earlier main episodes of our podcast. Sonia publishes and lectures widely, and she also maintains an informative Twitter account where she shares her knowledge with a broad public. Sonia, we're very happy that you're taking the time to join us this morning. I am delighted to be here, and I'm especially pleased to be joining the illustrious and amazing cast of characters you've already had on this podcast. So thank you for inviting me. It is such a pleasure. I'm really a fan of yours. I've seen you speak a few times, and I follow your Twitter, which hopefully will still be around when this episode finally uh, <laughs> comes on. But if not, are you are you on any other social media accounts at the moment? I've or? dipped my toes in, but um, nowhere yet. I mean, I have started an account at Counter Social, but that doesn't seem to, to be the place where people are migrating. Um, mm -hmm. So stay tuned, I would say. And if I do go anywhere, I will let people know via my Twitter. But my Twitter account is at... Sonia, which is S-O-N-J-A, so at Sonia underscore Drimmer. Yes, and we can also put it in the show notes too, because it'll be a few weeks before this posts, and so any updates I can also put, I can also put there too. That's great. So I am really excited to see what manuscript you have in store for us. I will say that I peaked. Uh, so uh, Sonia sent me an email a little bit earlier this week. And I like to come in blind, I guess you could say, like without looking at what people are going to talk about. But I took a look because the title was interesting. I won't share it, but the title looked fun. <laughs> and I and I paged through and I have no idea what is happening with this book. It looks very weird, which I like. So um, with that, I'm going to pass it on. And why don't you tell us about this interesting book from the British Library? Yeah, well, I'm really glad that you mentioned that it's weird and you had no idea what's going on because my first encounter with this manuscript was to be uh, sort of, you know, blown away by its enigmatic nature. And lots of people like enigmas, um, as we know from a recent episode you did with Lisa Fagan Davis regarding the Voynich manuscripts. But in this case, the enigma, we, we actually know it has an answer. So um, I won't leave you hanging in that respect. So um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what this manuscript is, and then I'm going to backtrack and tell folks about how I met this manuscript and why I'm so interested in it. And I should say, just I know this is called Inside My Favorite Manuscript. It is not my favorite manuscript. I don't have, <laughs> this is going to be a leitmotif with like everyone, right? I don't have them. Right. I like them all. Um, but, but this one, I think, really launched my interest in so many of the directions that I've pursued in the, in the decade plus since I first met this manuscript. Manuscript. So that's why I chose it today. Um, so to, to reveal a little bit of the mystery to begin with, what we're going to be talking about today is a manuscript that was produced around 1507. Uh, and it has, it opens up with an index. And so it sort of tells us, there's a heading to this index and it tells us what it is. And it says it in Latin, but I'll, I'll tell you what it is in English. It says, index of things that were written in hieroglyphs by Egyptians. And there is actually a scribal error, what we would call today a typo. Um, and it's really, it says like by Egyptians. Um, but later in the manuscript, the, the scribe actually writes it out properly. So we know that the scribe knew, and I, I will say he, because I, I, I'll, I'll reveal a little bit, we do know who the scribe was. Um, 
he knows how to spell Egyptian. But the fact that there is the scribal error is already going to be, it's going to be important to our story. So keep that in mind. Um, so how did I meet this manuscript? Uh, well, I did my doctoral dissertation, my PhD at Columbia, but in the fourth year of doing your dissertation at Columbia, it's expected that you will get further funding to go and as you know, in our history, we need to look at objects firsthand. And so you will get funding to go and do your research with your objects. And in my case, all the stuff I was working on, I work on predominantly on 15th century manuscripts produced in England. Uh, so I went to England, I moved there. And while I was there, and again, as you do when you are working towards your PhD, there will come up other opportunities and you want to get more experience. Uh, you want to get more funding. And so uh, this opportunity that came up was a pre-doctoral curatorial fellowship with the British Library in preparation for an exhibition called Royal Manuscripts, The Genius of Illumination, which opened in late 2011, 2010, 2011. It's been a long time. Um, 2011, I believe. And so, you know, I was, I was doing that, that curatorial fellowship. And early on, it was a really exciting day for me. The main curators of the exhibition, Kathleen Doyle and Scott McKendrick, invited all of those of us who were working on the exhibition into a conference room back in the, in the staff area. And the conference room had laid out on the central table a heap of manuscripts. And they mm -hmm. said, these are the ones that haven't been claimed. So there were postdoctoral fellows, Joanna Franska and um, Deirdre Jackson were the postdoctoral fellows. There were two at the time curatorial uh, pre-doctoral fellows that was me and Joshua O'Driscoll who now works as a curator at the Morgan Library so they invited us back and there were a few others and they said these ones haven't been claimed for the catalog entries and so I saw this thing and <laughs> I'd never seen anything like before so let me just tell people let me paint a, a picture for you of this manuscript and what I first saw so it is roughly eight and a half by five and a half inches so it's not big um, that's about the size of your average paperback, and it is um, roughly 50 pages or what we call 25 folios, and it's called that because we number manuscripts um, on their, the same number, front side and back side. So one recto verso, then two recto verso, and that equals our pages one, two, three, four. Okay, so 25 folios, pretty, pretty short. So in terms of its dimensions, and it's on parchment, um, so animal skin. Uh, in terms of its dimensions, it's not really impressive, but they had opened up the manuscript. It was laid out on its nice cushion, on its support, um, opened up uh, to a page of text. I don't remember which one, um, but it was uh, a page of text. And alongside the page of text in the left-hand margin on the left-hand page and on the right-hand margin of the right-hand page were symbols, and I thought, well, mm -hmm. what on earth are these symbols? There's, you know, one that's a footprint and one that's a wheel and one that's a bird on fire. And I thought, I've, and again, I, I'd never seen anything like this. So I pointed my finger and I said, that one, that's the one I want. <laughs> um, so that's how I, I met this manuscript. And so just to, to, to Dot and Lindsay, so far so good in terms of like letting, letting you know the, the basic dimensions and what this thing is, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very good. I have a, I have a really clear picture in my head. I think. How about you, Lindsay? Is that... Oh, definitely. It's yeah, loud and clear. So, um, right. Well, what do we do then? So, um, I you know went back to my desk, and you you know you you had to write up a formal slip to take these things back to your desks, and I started my research on this manuscript. So now I'm going to walk people through again. I haven't even told you what this is, and that was important to me. It was this inscrutability that um. I, you know, as a, a young researcher, an early career researcher, uh, and, and again, this manuscript had not been excessively cataloged, so people really didn't know what it was, and I, and I really want to emphasize that. So um, the, it opens up the manuscript with a couple of blank pages, but um, on the first page that has not been scribbled on by later users of this manuscript, so the first one that's original to the manuscript, is this index. So let me just lay this out for you. At the top, it says in big capital letters on folio 2 recto, 2R, index of things that were written in hieroglyphs by Egyptians or Egyptians. And then it has two columns that list out 
concepts and things. And I'll just give you a sense of what some of them are. They're all in Latin. They're written in what we now call a humanist cursive. So this is a kind of handwriting that is the great, 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 great granddaddy of modern italics. Like when you write Times New Roman and then you put it in italics, that's kind of what this looks like. Um, and it is, um, it was considered a script that was, re it's a Renaissance script, right? It was reviving what they thought were, were Roman, the way of writing Roman Latin characters. But in this case, it's a hasty version. Can I make a side note here about cursive, Dot and Lindsay? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so side note, because um, this is one of my, my hobby horses, um, people typically associate cursive nowadays with something that's really prestigious. You must learn cursive. It's so fancy. But actually in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, cursive was a lower grade of script. It's because mm -hmm. it comes from currens in Latin, meaning running together. So any of your listeners who, who speak Spanish, correr comes from, you know, uh, 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 the same word in Latin, to run. And uh, the letters, you don't have to lift your pen. So it's a fast script. So again, that's going to be important mm -hmm. to our story. So on this page are these two columns, and they lay out a bunch of, you know, concepts and objects. So it opens, the first one is natura, or nature, then amor, love, then vita, life, then custodia, care, and so on and so forth. War, peace, justice, injustice, king. So it's all of these ideas, important concepts. So basically what we're told on this first page is this is what you can expect in this book. These are the terms that you're going to find here. So we move right along. I'm turning can the I pages ask a quick now. Question? I love can I ask you a quick questions. question before we turn the page? Because yeah. I'm looking at this page and I see the two columns, but in the second column, there is more writing that's mm. been added. Can I, am I allowed to ask about this? Because that's yes, not the yes, same. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And these, you know, these books, they bear the traces of their lives. And sometimes it can be really hard for us to give a sense of what a book looks like in a linear fashion, because on one page mm -hmm. is a later part of this story. But yes, I will answer your question. So um, what Dot is pointing out here is that in the right hand column, uh, next to some of these concepts, in a darker ink and, and apparently a different hand, just the, the, the writing looks different, um, are more words. And these words were written by a later user or owner or, or reader of this manuscript uh, that is expanding or defining these concepts. Or um, as we're going to learn later, some of these concepts, uh, they belong to hieroglyphs that have many different meanings. So for example, the, the hieroglyph for um, eagle means sun and blood. So for reasons I'll explain later. <laughs> so this person was adding those in here. Um, and just to, to complete your picture of the page, since Dot was asking, at the bottom of the page are um, two later owners of this manuscript wrote their names, Arundel and Lumley. Okay. Right. So mm -hmm. um, turning the page, we have a little bit more of the index on the verso or the back of this leaf. But zoom ahead to folio three recto. And we have our first concept. And it is natura or nature. Uh, and there is, so what are we looking at? It is one full column of text on this page. Uh, it is written once again in that humanist cursive, so a kind of fast, hasty version of, 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 of a, a humanist script. And on the right-hand side of the page is a picture of fire. So now let's mm -hmm. turn to the next one. I'm just going to run people through um, uh, the page on the back of it. Same thing. We've got one big column of text. And then at the bottom of the page, we have our new concept. It's Vita, life. And uh, next to it on the in the left margin is an oil lamp, a flame. That's what that is. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, okay. We turn to the next page. So the facing page is for recto. So that's across from three verso. And we have uh, the concept of custodia, so care. Uh, and on the right-hand margin, but sort of edging into that column of text, is a dragon at the he's bottom cute. of the page. Oh, my God. He is, he's really cute. <laughs> he's, so cute. he's Sorry. I mean, he has that forked tongue, so probably, you know, fearsome. And mm -hmm. um, this dragon also has wings, as you do, I suppose. Um, and then also on the page is the new concept, defensor. And in the bottom margin, 
is a helmet and a shield. So these are, you know, defensive objects. And so we just run through the manuscript and we end up with, I wrote this out so I wouldn't forget, 57 of these. Mm -hmm. Um, we then there's, um, you know, and there are a couple of other images. There are some full page images, which I'll get to later. Um, but about, let me now see about two thirds of the way through the manuscript, we then, so starting on folio 19 V 19 verso, we then get a different, we get a change to this program. So I want everyone to imagine in your minds, First part of the manuscripts, it's all these concepts, and they're given pictures next to them to, uh, to go along with all these concepts. In the second part, which is the last third or the last quarter of this manuscript, we see each page has a full page illustration or what we would call a full page miniature. And it is a frame, almost like imagine a wall monument that you might go into a church and see a sort of commemorative monument on the wall. So it is a, a golden frame painted with saturated color in which all of these objects that we saw throughout the earlier part of the manuscript, they're now rendered in a more abstract style in gold ink. And they are arranged in what we could think of as a syntactical structure. So sentences. Mm -hmm. And then at the bottom of each frame, those words are then translated out into Latin to read a sentence. And that's the remainder of the manuscript. So we've got a series of these full page illustrations in which all of these concepts that have been given to us in the earlier part of the manuscript are now arranged into these, you know, wall monuments or monument like things. And then we're told in Latin what it means. So, you know, I'll tell everybody, I'll, I'll get to like, what is this? What is this thing that we're looking at? But imagine coming across a manuscript that has all this stuff. You've never encountered it before. There's no real sense of what it is. It hasn't been aligned to any particular published text um, that might have been, you know, floating around there. You know, like we know when we come across a, a devotional manuscript, if it has certain sorts of prayers, oh, this is a book of hours, or oh, this is a mm -hmm. Psalter. It contains the Psalms. Nobody knew what this was. And right. so I got to work and I gave myself a crash course in Renaissance hieroglyphomania. And that was really my, my first introduction to what this was. And what, what listeners might not know is that beginning in the 15th century, there was a period of extreme zeal for hieroglyphs in Renaissance Italy. And that was where I really started to piece this picture together. I did not know that, but I'm not surprised. It seems like kind of thing that they would be they would be really into yeah and so how this whole this whole what we can think of as, as the the hieroglyphs or the egyptian craze or trend kicked off it has a pretty secure origin story people who may have traveled to to rome might know that in rome there are egyptian obelisks some were, were brought there from Egypt in antiquity and others were actually produced in Rome itself. But they were sort of in a state of, you know, after many hundreds of years, they were in a state of decay. Uh, they had fallen down and people sort of really lost their interest in them. They were just a part of the, I suspect, a part of the urban landscape. But in 1419, a guy named Cristoforo Buendalmonti rediscovered on a Greek island a manuscript that promised to decode all those symbols that he found, that he knew were on these obelisks. Uh -huh. And this, this dictionary, it was a dictionary of hieroglyphs known as, it came to be known as Harapalos Hieroglyphica. And so this mm -hmm. was the pre-Rosetta Stone. It was the thing that allowed Renaissance humanists who were interested in recovering, you know, things of, of antiquity, knowledge from antiquity, mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was their Rosetta Stone moment. Does that manuscript, one, does it survive? And two, how, how old was it? You say he sort of found it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm really curious now about this, about this manuscript, where, where yep. it came from and who wrote it. It is. So the manuscript <laughs> itself, it's a 14th century copy. Oh, okay. It has been fully digitized. It's in Florence in the Lorenziana Library. Yep. Um, so it's been fully digitized. 
and uh, but it purports to be a copy of a text that was written in the first century CE or what some people know as AD. It is not. Later, later scholars discovered that it's actually fourth or fifth century. Um, so it is pretty old. It's pretty old, yeah. Uh, it is pretty old. I mean, there may be, you know, it's funny talking to you about this manuscript. The last time I was doing really like intensive research on it was seven years ago. So some of this stuff has fallen out of my mind as you do. Okay. Um, but, but so there may be more up-to-date research on the precise dating, but the manuscript itself, it's a paper codex. So it's a paper, you know, book the way that we think of books in terms of something that is bound. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. But it purports to be a copy of something that was written in the first century that thing was not written in the fourth century. It was probably written in the fifth. But, okay. um, you know, Cristoforo Bondelmonti brought this back or took this back to, to Italy and it circulated among Florent- Florentine humanists who, again, were profoundly interested in reviving the so-called glories of ancient knowledge. And so they, they, ter- they turned their newly educated eyes to the symbols on these obelisks and started to attempt to decode them. Now, none of these definitions, this is all pseudo hieroglyph. This is not a Rosetta stone, right. but it did give a kind of hope to the fact, and they thought that it, it was legitimate, right? So it, it sparked um, a renewed interest or an interest in attempting in earnest to pursue a scholarly enterprise of decoding these symbols, uh, these hieroglyphs. Uh, and for, you know, the following 200 years, um, you know, going up to folks like Athanasius Kircher, uh, we get, um, you know, a real, what would I call it, um, enthusiastic, zealous effort to both revive knowledge of hieroglyphs, to decode them, but also, and I'll sort of get into this when I get more into this manuscript, but also to um create new hieroglyphic languages, a more fanciful, yeah, a more fanciful reconstruction. So um, Brian Curran, who's an amazing scholar who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, he wrote a book um, called The The Egyptian Renaissance, and he divided up Italian humanists' interest in uh, hieroglyphs into two main categories. And one is what he called the archaeological, really attempting to do authentic scholarly work, um, and the um, I can't remember the term he used, but what we might call it the more fantastical, just an interest in it, mm-hmm. but to uh, create it now on renewed and new terms to build one's own version of hieroglyphs. Like fan fiction. Like fan fiction. Of course. Kind Can of, you imagine? Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't, I, it's, I, I love thinking in those terms because it almost, it almost feels like, you know, these serious Renaissance humanists would not want to have themselves, you know, thought of in those terms, but they should be. They would not. But yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. They were being creative, even if they didn't even if they didn't want to admit it. They were. Yeah. It sounds like they were being creative. Yeah. And I think so we can we can think about this then. Um, that's that's a great that's a much better term than fanciful. Right. So we have the archaeological and we have the creative approaches to mm-hmm. to hieroglyphs. So as soon as I and, you know, researchers listening to this, when you open up the floodgate, that's when you, re- you know, you find the one keyword or you find the one work of scholarship that allows you to start building your bibliography. I, I, I knew I had, as soon as I found, you know, I found out about this and there are foundational works you can imagine there are really important works on going back to Carl Gilov reading in 1915 on the Renaissance fascination with hieroglyphs. That's when I knew I could start to piece together a picture of what this manuscript is. So what did I find? Um, well, the first thing I found, what did I do, actually, is I, I went and I got out an edition and translation of this manuscript. And I should say, let me pause. The one that was found, the 14th century one that purports to be a dictionary of hieroglyphs, mm-hmm. the, the one that, that so um, that was written in Greek. So I found a modern edition of that Greek manuscript. So it's an edition and translation. And I started going through it, looking for all the symbols and trying to match them up with the ones in this manuscript. And it turns out that 15 of those have been taken and then translated by this manuscript into Latin. So it fits like one-to-one, here's the Greek entry for this hieroglyph, and here we get it in our manuscript, and here it is in Latin. So, okay, I was on a roll. Started piecing together the picture of this manuscript. Well, that's only 15, and I think I said to you there are 57, right? There are 57 symbols here. And some other pictures that I'll get to later. Um, uh, 
then uh, I started poking around in, well, where are the images of hieroglyphs in, in Renaissance Italy? Who's, who's, is anybody painting them? And, and turns out there is. And there was one thing that was extremely famous and extremely uh, significant. And it was a printed book called the Hypnerotomachia Polyphili. Say that five times fast, 10 times fast. Uh, <laughs> it was a printed book printed by the famous Aldous Minutius, a humanist printer. It was the first illustrated book to come off of his press in the year 1499. And the Hypnerotomachia Polyphili, or polyphilicis strife of love in a dream, <laughs> is an okay. absolutely it's like it it rivals the wizard of oz it is like a the original not the movie uh the, like it's yeah, yeah. like this this hallucinogenic dreamscape in which a guy is chasing his beloved uh polia uh -huh. and he stumbles into this this landscape that is filled with ruins and on the ruins are many hieroglyphs oh now, of course, these are all these are pseudo hieroglyphs. But regardless, right, right. Um, this this printed book, and you can buy again, listeners. You can go on to your favorite online store, your favorite bricks and mortar store, and get a modern paperback edition of this or facsimile of this printed book. Uh, contains these, you know, it, it gives us like snapshots, almost woodcut snapshots of these monuments mm -hmm. with their hieroglyphs, and the text translates them. And lo and behold, my manuscript. Crit, and it's a manuscript, so it's a handwritten book copied right. from this printed book, 34 of its hieroglyphs. Wow. And so this would be, it would be about eight years later, right? Because you said that this manuscript is 15, oh, around seven, 1507. But, yeah. And the book and was I printed hadn't in 1499. Known. Correct. Yeah. Oh, and I okay. hadn't. Okay. I hadn't known at the time that it was 1507, but that really helped me. Got it. Yeah, right? it would help because it can't be, it can't, clearly it can't be before 1499 because the book didn't yeah. exist before then. And when I say oh, copy great. these images, it's verbatim. So I should, I should pause and say that, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this manuscript today is because one of the things that I research and that I've published on are manuscripts that copy printed books. Um, mm -hmm. Many people have this assumption that technology proceeds in a nice linear fashion and that one technology outstrips another and then the other becomes obsolete. But for hundreds of years um, after the advent of printing in, in the West, mm -hmm. so in the, you know, around 1450, um, we get people copying out by hand, copying out printed books in part, in full, so on. At this point, I'm, I'm saying to myself, all right, this book is probably made in Italy because that manuscript of hieroglyphs uh, had been made in Italy. A printed edition of the Greek had been made. So this this whoever's whoever's creating this Latin version had access to a printed edition of the Greek version of this hieroglyphic dictionary. I know that he's cribbing 34 of his hieroglyphs from this very famous printed book by Aldous Minutius, the Hypnerotomachia Polyphili. Got some other symbols that I haven't been able to figure out their origins yet, but I'm dealing with Italy here. So here's where I have my break. In the British Library, another manuscript that I happen to have been tasked with writing the catalog entry for, the catalog essay for, for this exhibition, is a manuscript of almost exactly the same dimensions as this one, almost the same number of folios. So this one has about 25 folios. This other manuscript I was assigned to work on has about 30. It contains casual humanist cursive scripts. It's got mm -hmm. images that I should say stylistically, again, I'm an art historian. They look very much like the sort of illustrations that would have been produced, not in Italy, but actually in Paris around 1500. Likewise, the manuscripts with hieroglyphs look like it was actually pa painted in, in Paris. Just stylistically, it looks all, like all of these manuscripts that we know were painted in Paris around this time. And it also contains a text called CB's Tablet, which is a description of a journey taken by a youth who looks at a tablet. He sees all these creepy images or these weird images, and they're explained to him by a man as having all of these um, important meanings about vice and virtue. And um, well, well, it turns out this one has a dedication and we know the author. Oh, it's a guy named Filippo Alberici. He was a monk uh, living in late 15th and early 16th century uh, Mantua. He was a monk of the Servite order. And according to what is in this other manuscript, CV's tablet, there's a dedication in there. And then usefully by, by scholarship that have, has been published by David Carlson and David Rundle, this manuscript was 
a translation of a Greek text of, T- of CB's tablet that uh, Filippo Alberici, this aspiring humanist monk looking for patronage, had produced deliberately for Henry VII to present to him on a trip. He tried to intercept him in Cambridge uh, in on a visit in 1507, and he failed to do so. So he oh. recouped his losses and he rededicated it to Joachim Bretner, the Seneschal or like head administrator of King's Hall, Cambridge. And uh, it's been in England ever since. And I said to myself, well, the one that I'm working on now is similar to this other manuscript in all of these ways. And it doesn't have a dedication. What's the bet that these two were probably part of the same manuscript? Probably part of, and this one also remained in England. Um, part probably uh, were, were made together or made to be like a double gift to King Henry VII. Um, and uh, they just got severed along the way. Or again, were meant to be just like two separate books. And so um, uh, all signs point to, and, and largely the consensus people agree with me, that the one that I'd found was a manuscript produced by Filippo Alberici around the year 1507 mm-hmm. for presentation to Henry VII, but he failed to intercept the king. I think he just simply failed. David Rundle believes he simply failed to get a meeting with the king. So that, you know, that's another reason you said, I think we should have in this podcast, three reasons why we love this manuscript. Failure. I love writing about failure. <laughs> I love this. I feel kind of sorry for him. Like he, he worked so hard on his, on his little, on his little books and then, yeah. Didn't, didn't, didn't get to, didn't get to meet. Yeah. And that's another reason why, you know, I said at the beginning, I wanted people to, to notice the, what I call like the scribal error or the typo. He was doing this in haste. There are so many signs of haste and execution in these manuscripts. Basically what he was trying to do was he, he probably heard that there would have been an opportunity to intercept Henry VII on his trip to England. He knew that Henry VII was uh, a great patron of Italian humanists. So it's a great way to earn sponsorship for your scholarly activities. And so he probably got it into his head, I'm going to be the first person to write not just a Latin translation of this amazingly enigmatic book. In England, they'd not really heard of of hieroglyphs at this time. Mm -hmm. I am going to illustrate it. And while in Italy, there had been printed this hieroglyph dictionary and there had even been in 1505 there was there was a latin translation of it nobody had illustrated it yet and as a matter of fact Mm. the latin translator who had a a printed edition made in 1505 of this hieroglyphic dictionary said i really wanted to add illustrations but it would have cost too much and taken too much time and you know you can just go outside and look for yourselves so so right Right. because they were in italy and in england they had no there are no obelisks in in england so, yeah. I mean, I should also, I should, I should backtrack here. You know, I, you know, the three things, so the three things that I love about this manuscript, one, it has hieroglyphs and, and they're pseudo hieroglyphs. So I, I love the fact that they are not even authentic hieroglyphs, um, but they purport mm-hmm. to be. Number two, it's this emblem of failure. I love to see how people cope with failure and, and you know, make something, make something, uh, uh, make lemonade out of lemons, but also that it is a manuscript that copies printed sources. And so I should, mm-hmm. I want to direct people to an image in this manuscript. And let me just make sure I have the folio here because it's pretty amazing. So it's folio six recto. So I'm going to go back to folio six recto and tell people what we find because as I said earlier, um, there are some symbols that are not, they're not from Hypnerotomachia polyphili, that, that weird trippy dreamscape. They're not from Harapalos hieroglyphica. There are like 10 symbols in here that come from elsewhere. So on this page, we see at the top of it, one, two, three, four, five lines of text in one column. And then the rest of the page is filled with a gigantic uh, eagle, uh, looking to the side, but the eagle appears to be in flight. Its wings are, are I would say, half or quarter spread, so maybe, it, maybe it's about to take off. And riding on the eagle's back is a youth in a, a yellow toga-like garment with a billowing cloth over the youth's head, and, and they're wearing sandals. I love those sandals, by the way. I would, they're I would great. wear those sandals. They're kicky sandals. Yeah. They're so stylish. Um, they're great. So it says here that, you know, according to the text, 
Um, this is a representation that you can find on a given monument in Rome, but it's not actually. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a freehand one-to-one copy of a print, uh, an engraving by a man named Giulio Campagnola, single sheet engraving of the abduction of Ganymede. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and Giulio Campagnola was, um, and and there are images of it. Like in the the Met has a copy, so I can I can give you the link to mm-hmm. that so people can compare it. Uh, and great. it is a direct. Giulio Campagnola was a friend of the printer Aldous Minutius. There so, we go. Right. So what's going yeah. on here? Oh, and I should also say that engra- this is an, this is why I love pre copyright culture. Uh-huh. Giulio Campagnola's engraving copies. So it is this image of the abduction of Ganymede, but the background he cribbed from a print from Durer, from Albrecht Durer. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) So this is a manuscript copy of an engraving that also copies from another printed image. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. I love that it's this known, I mean, people must have known the abduction of Ganymede, and yet he's like claiming it's this entirely other thing that's egyptian right. that's so that's so weird that it's so weird that he would do that <laughs> like what a weird yeah, thing to do right and i mean to me to me it's sort of it, it signifies that he didn't expect that the person he was giving it to would have easy access to this oh. roman monument so once again um right all signs point to it being prepared for someone who's not living in rome at the very least right um mm-hmm. so Okay, but as I said, and there are other instances of this, like some of the text, his definitions of these hieroglyphs, he cribs from ancient sources like Ovid and Aulus Gellius, uh, because those books had been recently printed by Aldous Minutius. So he had right, access to, So, right. and, but again, I said, all of these images clearly bear the style. You look at any book that is that we know to have been hand-painted, so illuminated, in Paris around 1500, the first decade of the 16th century, the style of these illuminations look exactly like they come from Paris. So what is going on here? Filippo Alberici is, he probably, I, I don't necessarily know where he copied this out, whether it was in Mantua, where he's from, whether it's on the road, whether it's in Paris, but he's on his way to England. He stops in Paris. You know you can get things illuminated there. And he has an array of printed sources. How easy is it now to have in your trunk some very small printed books, a few single single leaf prints, single leaf, you know, engraving prints of engravings. And then there's, you know, other images here that come from at least one image that comes from a ducal medallion or coin. So he's got all of this printed material that you can just fit in your traveling trunk and hand them off to an illuminator who can use them mm-hmm. as inspiration, can copy from them. And then what is so why is he doing this? What's his what's his, you know, his end goal is obviously to get sponsorship and patronage. But he then does something so wildly creative, which is he uses the last quarter or third of this manuscript to have these symbols arranged into sentences that praise royal virtue and royal power. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. figures out, he invents, this is the create. So the first part is the archaeological side of Renaissance Egyptomania, right? It's a, it, it says it purports, this is a real dictionary of hieroglyphs. But the next part is the more creative or fanciful side, because he then has them all arranged in these full page illuminations, these stylized versions of those symbols we see earlier in the manuscripts into sentences that praise royal virtue and power, because he knows this is going to the king or he wants it to go to the king. And he even invents a way to conjugate them and to create plural. So for example, we learn earlier in the manuscript that a fish hook means to hold he creates in one of these later, you know, inscriptions later in the manuscript, one of the words in one of the sentences is the word upheld. And so he twists the, he has the illuminator create the, the, the hook in a different direction. Interesting. Right. He uses two of those symbols to create the plural and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So it is just this amazingly creative and, you know, attempt at archaeologically authentic way to understand hieroglyphs Mm -hmm. and i just think it's so weird it's so weird and so cool and i have never i've never seen anything like it i just i love it what do you think Lindsay? yeah Lindsay. yeah i mean i saw you smiling because we have we we have camera access here while we're while we're talking so (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, it's 
just, it's amazing to just think about this guy's thought process and what he is doing with this thing. And I love this guy. He is <laughs> he's wildly creative. I mean, he's kind of a huckster. Yes. <laughs> I just, I, I would love to meet him and just, you know, say, well done, sir. Um, and it's it's just astonishingly creative and every time i see a manuscript i'm overwhelmed by the creativity in the art and how it was made and all of the details but this is sort of on a different level he made up all of these concepts and pulled from everything he'd ever seen with Mm. his own eyes to Mm. illuminate and elaborate upon them and Mm, i'm really quite blown away what a fascinating book it's very personal in a way that you don't i mean i don't want to say you don't see it because i see i do actually see a lot of sort of manuscripts that have obviously sort of been made by a single person or maybe a small group of people for a specific reason but a lot of times what you see are things like books of hours which are sort of part of a much larger genre and there's lots and lots of them, mm-hmm. but even books of hours can, are, you know, are often very, are very much personalized and in things like by also like Bibles, like anything like that. But this, it feels like it's on sort of a different level because it, as Lindsay uh, said, and, and Sonia, like you're everything that you've said is like, this is one person and he's doing this thing. He has a vision and he and he sort of makes it happen, cobbling, you know, even though it, it sounds like what he's doing is he's really cobbling. He's not inventing anything from whole cloth. He's actually cobbling together a lot of existing things, but he's doing it in a really particular way. I don't know. I just think it's, it's fascinating. And it's, you know, it, and, and it is an amazing work of scholarship. I mean, he was creating his own Latin translation. So it's not, mm. as I said, there there had been a Latin translation at the very least of Harapalo's Hieroglyphica of that, that manuscripts that was discovered um, in 1419. But um, it's not, it doesn't match that Latin translation. It's his own. And he inserts oh, okay. quotations. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he inserts mm-hmm. quotations from reputable sources uh, like Ovid and other ancient authors. So, so he, and, and he's translating those as well. It, it is really a, an amazing act of scholarship, even though we recognize it now as, you know, these are not authentic hieroglyphs, certainly not authentic definitions of hieroglyphs. He was working under the, at least the half impression that they were. Right. And he wanted to ensure that they would be, they could find a new use. And this is all part of, you know, a much longer tradition, but, but one that w- was certainly pursued by Renaissance scholars in Italy, which, which was to see whether a universal language could be found. So, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that hieroglyphs were this sort of universal language that, you know, if only you could crack it, you could then disseminate it. It seems sort of um, counterintuitive, right? Because if it needs to be deciphered, then it's not a universal language. But this mm-hmm. was of, of really of profound interest. And, you know, it's, it, it's funny. I, I think it's very much what he was doing of a piece with the sort of things that Henry VII was patronizing. And so he had a good idea. He, he found a niche. You know, these two texts, not only had they, you know, well, if they if they'd been they'd been translated, but they hadn't been illustrated, and he got it into his head that he could really do something novel and impressive, particularly for a figure who would have not who would not have known about hieroglyphs or ha- would not have known much about them because England didn't have the sort of obelisk culture, it didn't have the obelisks that that Rome had, and I think there's a really nice epilogue to the story, which is that even though it was left, these, these two manuscripts were left behind in England, we know for sure that, that the, the CB's table or, or the tabula sabatis that was left with the seneschal and administrative officer of King's Hall at Cambridge. Uh, maybe this one was left with him too. And it just, it didn't need a dedication because they were originally bound together, but regardless it passed. So now this is the hieroglyphs manuscript. It passed to two noblemen, so Henry Fitzalan and John Lord Lumley, who are the ones who left these annotations that you mentioned in the beginning, Dot. And what I think is 
significant. Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't think so, but you never know. In the 1580s, one of the owners of this, the later owners of this manuscript, John Lord Lumley, was the person who constructed the first Egyptian monument in England. It was a pyramid at Nunsuch Palace. Now, again, like he probably cultivated an interest in, in ancient Egypt in, you know, through other venues, but he was an owner of this manuscript. So it could have been part of the scholarship that he was reading that inspired him to have this monument built, what he called the pyramid, but it was an obelisk. Does that still exist? Or do we have any pictures of it that survive or anything? We have pictures of it that survive, yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. suppose any of the inscriptions on the obelisk bear resemblance to... In anything oh, in this in this book. What a fantastic <laughs> question. I think if they had, I would have mentioned it in the article that I wrote. I would think that you would have noticed. Okay, so I'm going to yeah. assume the answer. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe I'll, I'll, I'll look back at this. And one thing I should say, just because it's always important to acknowledge one's debts. After I worked on this for this exhibition, and where I wrote the catalog essay that sort of previewed these findings, Mm-hmm. I did get a fellowship at the Warburg Institute to complete work on this article. And, and I, I want to say that not only because it's important to acknowledge the people that support our scholarship, but the Warburg Institute is itself a wild place. Mm-hmm. It is a library that originated from the collection of Abby Warburg, an important Jewish scholar, um, art historian in the early 20th century. It had to be evacuated from Germany because and, and reset up in London, obviously because of the Nazis. But mm-hmm. what's important about the, this particular library is it's absolutely bizarre intellectual layout. It's not the Dewey Decimal System. It's not the Library of Congress organization. It is according to a series of topics as defined and devised by Warburg. And effectively, if you, it works very well for this sort of scholarship, because if you are interested in, say, Renaissance Egypto zeal or Egyptomania, um, and, re- and interested in, in Renaissance hieroglyphs and what later came to be known as emblems, you just find one book And then you open your arms as wide as you can and pull everything else off the shelf. It is unlike any other library that that is out there. And it's in London today. That sounds sounds amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned um, that you were there while you were finishing up this article. And I will put a citation and maybe a link to the article if it's available in the show notes. I'd love that. Yeah. So anyone who's listening to this, if you want to know more, then you you can read read the article and I'm going to read the article too, because I want to have it all in my brain. This is just so neat and I love it. I really love it. Have you seen another manuscript like this before? Anything that is in any way, because you mentioned Voynich, but Voynich is like, that's like a whole Mm. other kind of thing. No. Yeah. Yeah, And, and I have to say, I'm allergic to the Voynich manuscripts. I don't know how Lisa Fagan Davis does it. No, everything about it just, just, just run away, run away. Um, for for all, for all, and this is why we're all, you know, humans. We are such a diverse species. What for all the reasons that Lisa Fagan Davis loves the Voynich manuscripts, I am repelled by it. I, you know, it, it's just not my, it's not my bag. It's not my jam. Um, and and I think the reason for that is just it. I remember listening to the podcast, the episode with with Lisa, and she mentioned a few times that, you know, it lends itself to being seen however you want to see it. And one of the ways that people Mm -hmm. can choose to see the Voyage Manuscript is as a hoax. And I can't not see it as a hoax. And I don't like... Yeah. And I, but, but again, like uh, from no scholarly knowledge whatsoever, I've never, I don't, Uh I don't read scholarship. Uh It just frustrates me. And, um, and I don't like pranks. I've yes. never been one. Okay. I've never been one for pranks or tricks, and mm-hmm. so for that reason, I've just. But but again, like for all the reasons that that Lisa lists in in her episode with you, it, it is very believable to see that it's not a hoax. I just that's what mm-hmm. I see when I see it, and so I run away. Whereas this um, is even if it's not an authentic dictionary of hieroglyphs, what we think right. of now today is authentic to ancient Egypt. It's not going to help you mm-hmm. decipher the writing system that you see in monuments from you know, 2000 BCE, it is still an earnest attempt to do so. Right. And it gives its own cipher to its code. So have I seen anything else like this? 
kind of sort of in the sense that the what we might think of as the successor to um, these early interests in hieroglyphs and certainly the Hypnarotomachia polyphili are what are called emblem books. So in the, the 16th century, we start to see the explosion of this genre of book in which um, a concept will be defined, let's call it prudence, and then uh, an illustration, a woodcut illustration in the, in the printed versions of these books will combine together a series of images that flesh out this concept, tell you the virtue of this concept. And so this became a very, very uh, popular genre, so emblem books. And Piero Valeriano was one of the first to uh, really flesh out and explore this, this genre. So emblem books become uh, very much of a piece with um, this manuscript and its, you know, desire to put together um, symbols and create, you know, a kind of lang- universal language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got curious and I went to Penn's catalog and it looks like we have some, we don't have any manuscript emblem books, but we have some early printed emblem books in our collection. And maybe I'm going to check those out because I'm really curious now about this sort of genre of of thing, which I hadn't, I hadn't heard of before, but I think that's very. Yeah. Prints and emblem books are, are fascinating. They're amazing. And they are, uh, they were produced in large numbers. They were very popular. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So Lindsay, do you have mm-hmm. any, any thoughts or questions before we say farewell? I have this question and I will just start asking it of everybody that we have on the show. Is there a book or manuscript that you haven't met yet that you would just really, really love to meet? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, All of them. No. Um, (laughs) Is there a book or manuscript that I have not met yet that I would really like to meet? Um. It's going to take me a few moments. That's okay. It's so, it's almost, it's almost bizarre that I don't have an answer to this question because I think the way, you know, the answer to the, to the question is really whatever it is I'm working on now that I haven't had a chance to visit. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I find that, and, and perhaps this is because I have chosen to dedicate most of my work to manuscripts that are not considered gorgeous or superstars. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really got it into my head to have a, you know, a series of books that or manuscripts that um, are on a bucket list. Um, I take a much broader, I have a much broader approach. Um, I go on a lot of curators won't love hearing this, though they probably know it's true anyway. I go on a lot of fishing expeditions. So I will rock up to whatever library I'm at to see legitimately, I have reasons to see some manuscripts, but then I will call up anything that seems adjacent to my current interests and see what sort of shakes out uh, um, as being relevant to what I'm working on. And so I think in a way, you know, not having a kind of uh, a get, and not having something, a superstar that I've always wanted to see has been, you know, the opposite of an impediment. It's just allowed me to, I don't know, sit with a lot of things that I wouldn't even think to want to see. I love <laughs> this answer. That is wonderful. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. And I definitely am right there as well, just in terms of like every I don't know. There's so much more than just the big, fancy, famous manuscripts. Mm. There are so many, you know, ones that people don't look at or think about or study. And they're just, they're so great to to get to know a little bit. Because every, mm. every book I've ever looked at has been interesting in some kind of way. Well, that's just right. And, you know, I, I'm really sorry that I can't remember the person who said this. I don't think I'm original in making this remark. So, you know, that probably suggests I saw it on Twitter. But, you know, Christopher de Hamel, who's a well-known manuscript scholar, published a, a book called Meetings with More Remarkable Manuscripts. And like this person, I'm probably stealing this idea from, from Twitter. You know, my version would be Meetings with Unremarkable Manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I think that there are, you know, and, and I think that your podcast is really encouraging people to speak about the remarkable stories about objects that might not come across as remarkable. And in many ways, even though the one that I've talked about in today's episode is, is remarkable, it is this you know, enigmatic, inscrutable thing or once inscrutable thing, it is not especially luscious. It is not deluxe. It is the size of a paperback, of a, of a novella even. And the illuminations aren't especially luxurious. There is gold, but it's not gold leaf. It's shell gold, which was a way of creating powdered gold as opposed to like sheets of gold that you lay down on the page. Create powdered gold and you add a, a binder to it to turn it into paint. So it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. It's still gold, but it's cheaper. And, and so this manuscript isn't really shouting its, its luxury or, or its sumptuousness. It's, it doesn't have that. Yeah. So I, the person who I saw recently say that, and I don't know if she was the first mm-hmm. person to say it, was Kathleen Kennedy. Not the Star Wars Kathleen mm-hmm. Kennedy. There is a manuscript Kathleen no. Kennedy <laughs> who I intend to have on this podcast at some point. Very nice. Uh, so Kathleen, I'm sorry I've stolen your joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, but I, don't know if, I don't know if she was even the, the original person um, to say that. Because I'm sure I'm sure that that we have that we have thought about it. And I have to say, like, I don't think that I was thinking about Christopher DeHamel when I came up with the idea for this podcast, but it's definitely I'm definitely much more in the like unremarkable, remarkable stories about unremarkable manuscripts, I think is a great way of putting it. Um, yeah. And don't get yeah. me wrong. I mean, I love shiny, mm-hmm. shimmering, coruscating things. You know, some of my favorite yeah. objects, some of my favorite manuscripts are luxury. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, some, of, some of the things that I, I enjoy teaching most are these um, stunning works that have jeweled bindings and textiles inside of them and silk textiles, not just textiles, but silk, silk textiles. Um, uh but I think I either trained myself not to want to work on them or naturally didn't in part because that's a crowded field. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was, a, you know, an early career scholar or a young scholar just making my way, I felt more comfortable not attempting to, you know, occupy a terrain that so many amazing people were already inhabiting. And I thought, well, let me, let me look out there and see if there's some other terrain that, you know, doesn't look as promising at first, but actually there might be some really engaging stories here. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I will say that the last time I was in London, which was before the pandemic, I went by the British library and I went through, it was after the big Anglo-Saxon manuscripts exhibit. So that was over. Mm. So I I think they just had the regular ones, but they had the Luttrell Psalter on, um, Mm. on open and the Luttrell Psalter. If you, you probably like those of you listening, even if you don't know the name of it, you've probably seen images of it because it has on one hand, these gorgeous miniatures and, images of sort of pastoral scenes but it also is like chock full of like weird little monsters and so you've probably seen these weird little monsters but I cried when I saw it in person and I do not cry like at all let alone like for some manuscript but I don't know there was something very I don't know why maybe I was in a mood that day but um but that was really (laughs) you know that was that was really an emotional experience for me that I have not that I have not had. Um, so that was my one like big fancy and I didn't even, you know, it was in a case, so I didn't even get to like touch it, but, but that was really something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think it was always in a case when I was working at the British library and I would, Oh, I wouldn't say no if I was, if I were given the opportunity to, to flip <laughs> through it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, here, I think that that raises one of the questions, one of the, one of the important questions, which I think is unanswerable, which is, you know, what is it that sparks that kind of affective response from us? Is it that the object is so well known, you've seen it disseminated, you know, you've seen its images memefied and, or, is it that the object itself really has something? In it? And, 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 you know, it's probably both because if the object didn't have the kind of appeal that it has, then people wouldn't be reproducing it over and over again. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I think it can also speak to, 
the sort of lopsided nature of how necessarily of how canons get created, right? And when we talk about canons, what we're talking about are those objects and monuments and literary texts that, you know, a certain group of people have deemed the most important. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's all this great scholarship on the Luttrell Psalter. Not only is there great scholarship, but the Luttrell Psalter has been, I think there are images of it on, there used to be images of it on like cookie tins, Oh, probably. Right. Because this manuscript people should know is that it was created between 1325 and 1340 in England for a man named Sir Geoffrey Luttrell. And it contains all of these representations of what make you believe they are sort of snapshots of everyday rural Mm -hmm. life in 14th century England. And and they're highly prejudicial images. They were made for the eyes of the rich man who bought this book. So all Mm -hmm. of the peasants look very happy. What a great coincidence, right? Um, (laughs) They're so happy being peasants farming his land. Um, And there's a great book written about just this by Michael Camille called Mirror in Parchment. But but because of that, this manuscript became a great emblem of Englishness, of Mm -hmm. merry old England. And it is it is easy to see why it can have that response in and of itself to people, meaning like have this, this make you feel breathless with it. But sometimes I just get breathless with excitement when I see things that I've just only seen on a screen over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a little bit of both. Thank you so much, Sonia. This has been really fun. It was a great story. I feel like I just had a great story time and that was just really great. Yes, yes, it was. My pleasure. I love telling stories. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dot and Lindsay, for having me on this program. And um, yeah, it was really fun for me as well. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com. And there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.